This is the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and boy, do we have a supersized chapter for you this week. Author John Grissom tells us why sad stories make great fiction. Thriller writer Kara Ruda shares how her characters tell her where they want the story to go. And we chat about how political thrillers have changed post 9-11 and where they're headed next with Jack Carr. That's all coming up in this chapter 185 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. While author John Grissom is best known for his legal thrillers like A Time to Kill and The Pelican Brief, did you know he's a huge sports fan who's penned several sports novels? His newest book, Suli, is his first basketball novel, and I had the pleasure of chatting with him about it. Hey, Lisa, John Grisham here. Good morning, John. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine, thanks. How are you doing? Good. I'm looking forward to talking to you. I am, too. What are you going to talk about? <laughs> Excellent. I know. I, I heard you have a new book out. <laughs> yeah. came out uh, Tuesday, Suli. Congratulations. And I know a lot of people, they immediately associate you with your legal thrillers, but you're no stranger to writing sports novels. Tell us how the pandemic led to Suli. Well, very directly, because um, in March of last year, we're, we're big college basketball fans, and we were um, we were watching the sports, the sports shows, getting ready for, you know, March Madness. And I'll never forget, we saw this flash. It came across on the whole screen. March Madness canceled. And uh, it was hard to believe. It's, you know, the, probably the biggest sporting event in the country. And um, I'd been rattling around uh, an idea for a basketball novel for some time, uh, wanting to write one for a long time, but didn't have the, didn't have the story. And so when I realized we were going to go without March Madness, I, I, I said, I've got to have a basketball fix. So I started <laughs> writing the novel. So you went and uh, filled the void. And I heard also uh, this is one of the, the bigger books you've written as well. Yeah, the other I have three other sports novels uh, before, two football and one baseball. And they're all about 50,000 words, uh, kind of a small sports book that I'd love to read and love to write. And uh, Suli was going to be the same length. It was not going to be a thick book. But it grew and grew, and the pandemic um, kept going on. I couldn't travel anywhere, so all I, all I had to do was stay home and write. So the book got too thick, and it, it came in at about 100,000 words. And so it's longer than I anticipated, but the, you know, the story had to be told. Now, the story centers around a young basketball player from South Sudan with dreams of, of making it big in the U.S. And I hear you were inspired by an article you read and also some real players, right? Yeah, there's several inspirations. Um, the first being, uh, you know, a little love for the game and avid fans. And, you know, we've been college basketball fans for my, for a long time. My wife is, went to UNC and she's a, a rabid Tar Heel fan and basketball is the religion down there. So in our, around, in our house, it's a lot of sports and a lot of basketball, especially from December through March. And uh, so, you know, we we enjoy the game. We go to, go to a lot of games. The magazine article you mentioned uh, was two or three years ago about this team from the South Sudan uh, who came to uh, the U.S. in the summertime for a big showcase tournament featuring teams from around the world. And... Um, it's a true story, and the Sudanese boys, South Sudanese boys, just uh, capture the attention of the crowd with the way they played, their exuberance, their uh, 
style of play, their big smiles, and it was a really neat article about these kids. And they they slaughtered everybody in the tournament. They were really good, and so that was that's probably the biggest inspiration. Uh, we go to all of the UVA home games. We live here in Charlottesville, and so we we go to all of the home games here. And about five years ago, a kid from Guinea uh, named Mamadi Diakite arrived here and um, didn't make much of a splash. He didn't play much his first two years, but he kept uh, getting better and better. Uh, and his senior year, and junior and senior years, he was really a, a fine player. Never was All-American or all, even All-Conference, but he kept growing and um, became a real shot blocker. And, uh, you know, he could jump over the backboard and uh, just a phenomenal athlete. He actually got drafted this spring by Milwaukee. He's on the roster right now. He's made it up to the bigs in the, the NBA. So he's still improving. He, we, and we, we fell in love with this kid, the way he played, the big smile. the You could tell he was just having fun on the court. And so it, that was another inspiration. It all kind of came together uh, last year when March Madness was canceled. I, I said, I, you know, I got to do something. I'm going to write this book. Now, there are often a lot of ups in, in, in sports stories. But you're on record saying you like sad sports stories. Why is that? Well, I like sad stories in general because uh, they're much more dramatic. There's more There's more a storyteller can do with a sad story because of more drama, tragedy, suffering. Anywhere, anywhere you have uh, great suffering, you have great fiction. And I'm, I'm from the South. I'm from Mississippi. And, you know, we produce a lot of writers um, – I think one reason is because of our history. Uh, there's been so much suffering down there over the last 200 years. And so anytime you have uh, more drama, uh, then you have better storytelling. And the, the sad stories stay with you. And there, there's nothing sadder than uh, a true story uh, about a great athlete who uh, gets hurt or gets in trouble or uh, dies or, you know, whatever, whatever, the, because of the great loss of potential and the fans will always say what could have been, what could have been, how how great could he have been had he been able to have a career. So those, baseball, basketball, football are all filled with those true stories and they're always heartbreaking, but we remember those. You've already done a lot of interviews for this book. Is there a question you haven't been asked yet that you wish someone would ask you? Well, I'm drawing a blank. Um, I've been, had a lot of questions. Um, um, yeah, one question. Why such a lousy title? Suli <laughs> uh, <laughs> is the kid's nickname, of course. His real name is Samuel Suleiman, and they call him Suli. Suleiman is a fairly common name in East Africa. I changed the spelling to suit myself, and uh, so that became his name. That was the working title, and for months uh, we scrambled to try to find something better. Uh, I've never titled a book after the main character, and um, I searched high and low for you – know, we, we used all the basketball phrases, above the rim, beyond the arc, in the paint, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> none of it none of it worked, you know. And when the book was finished, we were left with nothing but Suli. And we 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 grew to like the title because it's so different, and I think it's going to work. You know, as someone who's read the book, I can I totally get it, and like it just I mean he 
he's the book. And it just, it makes so much sense to name it after him. Yeah. Yeah. It's working now. It wasn't working six months ago. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I know you're already working on your next book. Are you going back to legal thrillers? Oh, yeah, yeah. The the fall book, the, the big legal thriller is um, is very much, you know, kind of built into our calendar and our year and as a family, uh, just what we do, what I do. Uh, I start uh, in January, and I really enjoy writing in January, February, and March uh, because about all there is to do is go watch basketball games at night and write during the day, and uh, I get a lot of work done then. April is productive, and I've had a good four months, and so I'll finish it uh, late June or around July the first. I promised my publisher the book every year by J- uh, July the first, a good, a good clean uh, second or third draft that they can take and and produce and and run with and give it to copy editing, and we go from there. So that's that's a schedule. Um, I still I still enjoy plotting and piecing together legal thrillers and uh, building suspense and surprising readers. And that's, you know, it's still fun. And, and, uh, and there are a lot of people out there who, who enjoy the books and they have for a long time. So I'm not going to let them down. I know that you have this great relationship with your readers, with your fans, and you love going out there and going to all the, the little bookstores, going out and meeting readers. Are you hoping that you'll be able to get back to that soon, maybe later this year? I'm hoping we can get out of the house for anything. Uh, <laughs> I'm hoping we can travel probably by the fall. We're not going to travel much this uh, summer. We're going to take it careful and avoid the risks. Uh, we worry about you know things opening up too fast again, so we're in no hurry to get out, but we would love to travel. Yeah, I, I, I like to go back on the road, and um, I love to go to bookstores and and just see them and browse and uh, and you know hang out with booksellers and uh, meet some of the readers and fans and and say thanks and hello and talk to them and that's um, you know that's that's a dream come true is to go on a book tour. Uh, I did it years ago. I stopped doing it for many years uh, because I just got tired of it. And then you know three or four years ago, I realized that it's not. I realized I was becoming more of a recluse and not getting out much and taking things for granted. And so I said, okay, I'm going to hit the road and, um, and tour some and I had a ball doing it. I think we'll always have a big element of the virtual events because, um, it's so easy to cover so much territory. I can do interviews with the Europeans, uh, easily, uh, and cover a lot of territory there. We'll, we'll we'll keep doing the virtual interviews and some virtual events, but uh, I'll be back in the stores as soon as possible. Well, until then, people have a lot of your books to get through if they haven't already, if they're not picking reading them every year. John Grissom, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your latest basketball novel, Suli. Thank you. My pleasure. The Perfect Marriage Goes Very Wrong in The Next Wife, the new domestic thriller from Kyra Ruda. There's a successful first wife who sees her marriage implode when her husband falls for his younger, sexy assistant. And I can't really tell you what happens next because I'd give it all away. So now I present Exhibit A and how to talk about a book without really talking about it. Right off the bat, I think your book should come with a warning. Trust no one and question everything because 
<laughs> you go into this book thinking you know it's going one way and then you completely twist it around and we end up somewhere else by the time we get to the end. The story features two very strong women. We have the first wife and the, the titular next wife and the man they both share who part of me wonders if he's had everything coming to him all along. <laughs> I know it's, it was kind of fun to write it uh, with that maybe in mind. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, how did this story about resentment, rage, greed come about? Yeah, you know, well, the idea was sparked. My husband and I actually built and ran a company together. And um, that's what in the fictional novel, Kate and John Nelson did together. So I had a lot of fodder from our 10 years in business together. Fortunately, I didn't have a, any executive assistant <laughs> to the picture between us. So that's kind of where the spark of the idea came. And, you know, I mean, it's a pretty um, common story, I guess, about uh, divorce and the second wife being the younger model and all that good stuff. So I wanted to use those kind of um, cliches, I guess, and then try to turn them on their heads. And we can't really talk a lot about the plot of this book because, like I mentioned at the top, it's so (laughs) twisty. They're so full of surprises that we would really give away the story. So I'm trying to, I'm being very creative with my questions here today. So I know you are. Yeah. (laughs) It is very hard to talk about. Why do you think people like to read about affairs and messy marriages and things like that? Well, I mean, I think we all like to escape <laughs> into story and and find people who maybe are uh, having um, less fun than we are at the time. You know, so I think it's a good escape read. I also think, to your point, it's about two very strong women, and you know, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned kind of situation. So, kind of watching these two women, um, uh, I guess, play a game against, kind of battle each other, is also kind of fun. I, I'm hearing from people. These two women, they know exactly what they want from life, and they have no shame in going out there and getting it. And I think a lot of times women like that in the real world are looked down upon. They're called names. They're maybe not taken as seriously. And we have this poor hapless man who's caught in the middle. And usually like it's, it's kind of like the tables have been turned in a way. Yeah, I hope so. I, I love writing strong women characters. And even though sometimes my characters are, are strong people you might not like very much, I mean, they do, to your point, have goals and desires and dreams. And and, I, and in fiction and in real life, it's true. Women who have that kind of drive often get um, bad labels and, and other things put on them. But these women will tell you straight to your face that they're out to get what they want and nothing's going to get in their way. And it's interesting, too, because there is a third female character at play, and that's the daughter of the first wife and the husband. And it's really kind of interesting to watch her progression in the novel because you kind of start to wonder, okay, is she which one of the two women is she going to end up with as she start, you know, when she gets older, so to so to speak? Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, kids caught in the middle of divorce often go through this kind of thing. So I wanted Ashlyn to have her own voice and she actually did one of the first drafts of the novel. She wasn't in it as far as having a point of view um, chapters. And then luckily she got to come, she had to come to the page. So she definitely is an important part of the novel. And, and one of my favorite characters, because as she kind of figures out who's who and what the actual, I guess, probably actual desires of each of the wives are, she, she does make choices. I've heard you describe your style of writing as, uh, or describe yourself as a pantser. For for people who aren't familiar with that term, tell us what that means. 
I know it's a funny term. It means writing by the seat of your pants. And so what that actually means in my stories is I'll sit down with the character probably in a title and a blank page and start writing. And that's for me the most fun of all. Everybody kind of develops as the story unfolds. And that first draft is just magical. Now I have learned that other people like my agents and my editors would love to have an outline <laughs> at least a little bit. <laughs> so I'm learning to be a teeny teeny bit of a plotter but not much because my characters don't like a lot of structure or else it kind of stymies their isn't that weird that they're like kind of talking to me while I'm writing but that's how that's how the magic happens I love it you know that that isn't as weird to me as it used to be because I've had so many writers tell me that so I've just come to realize that writers are, are have voices in their heads and it's not crazy or bad right hopefully not even though they might be bad characters so you know there's that you ever write yeah. yourself in a corner by flying by the seat of your pants? You know, I i mean, I'm sure I have, but then that's when the characters kind of jump in and help you out in a weird way. <laughs> weird way. <laughs> it's like the more we talk about it, the stranger it starts sounding, right, when you say it out loud. Exactly. So, yeah, we should move on to something else. <laughs> So you mentioned that the the working dynamic between the first wife and the husband is based on on your own experiences working with your husband. So does that mean you're most like Kate or do you have a little bit of Tish, the second wife in you, the next wife in you? I like to think that I have a little bit of both of those characters in me, as well as Ashlyn, because, you know, when you're creating character, there's a little bit of you in each one, even if it's uh, a really <laughs> bad side, too. But I think from my perspective, like Tish has worked really hard to get where she is. And so Kate has, too, in a different way. But um, so Tish is, you know, like a scrappy street fighter she can she she's maybe didn't have the traditional path to success as far as studying and books and all that kind of stuff but she knows she's very smart and then Kate has you know Kate has worked really hard and I guess that she's probably a little bit more like me on that side because you know I was like I loved going to school I loved learning and um, building a company was just such a it was a great ride and and so much fun for the most part so I guess there's a little bit of both of them and you know, I've I devoured this book. I can't wait for the next one. Can you tell us what the when that might be and what it might be? Sure. Yeah. The next my next book is called Somebody's Home, and it will be out January eighteenth of next year, which is exciting. Another unreliable nar narrator. Can we count on that? I think you can count on that for sure. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Yeah, and it's yeah, it's a fun story. It's about um, the sense of belonging, two families, uh, one house, and uh, a lot of uh, drama happening. Yeah. Well, that sounds like drama right away. Two families, one house. That never works. <laughs> no, 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 no. It doesn't. Especially when the one kid doesn't want to leave the house and the family sold it. So yeah, there's there's a problem there. <laughs> oh, that sounds like fun. In the meantime, yeah, really though, fun. readers, if, if we've piqued their interest talking about a book we can't talk about, they can go pick up The Next Wife, Kara Ruta. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Lisa. I had a blast talking about the book without talking about the book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's an art. It is. <laughs> this year marks the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And while there are many things the U.S. has learned as a result of the events of that day and the military campaigns that followed, we aren't the only ones. In his new James Reese thriller, The Devil's Hand, author and former Navy SEAL Jack Carr posits our enemies have been watching and waiting for the right time to strike again. 
And as coincidence would have it, the fictional weapon of mass destruction in Jack's book is a deadly virus. I had the chance to talk with Jack about his inspiration, as well as his personal 9-11 story. Okay, so when I was just starting to feel like we're starting to turn the corner on a really terrible year, I got my vaccine, the COVID positivity rate is starting to drop, along you come with this book. And I've got to say, whatever easiness I was feeling has been completely shattered. Oh, I don't know if that's good or bad. I'm thinking it's good because you always want your uh, your readers to have some sort of a, an emotional reaction or connection, I think, to uh, to what they're reading. So it draws them in. Um, but the crazy part is I outlined this whole thing in August of 2019 when I was flying to and from Russia doing research for my last novel, Savage Sun. Uh, so well before COVID hit and well before the very pivotal year that 2020 became. So uh, at the outset, I did not think it was going to be that timely of a novel. I just thought it was something that because I've been thinking about the foundation of the book, which is really what the enemy has learned by watching us on the field of battle for the last 20 years of war. So I've been thinking about it for almost 20 years uh, during my time in uniform as a SEAL and now as a citizen and as an author. But with when 2020 hit, uh, the book became a lot more timely. How much of your plot uh, that centers around a bioweapon attack facilitated by Iran is rooted in reality. So this was a lot of research, a lot of academic research, because I didn't have any touch points with bioweapons really when I was in the military. So all of this became reading medical journals and books and interviews with people who had done some work with infectious diseases. Uh, and I kind of started putting together this whole tapestry, this this puzzle, kind of like a journalist, I think, would. Um, so and, and during that research, uh, well, I, I guess the best way to say it is I would be shocked if I was too far off in what I describe in the book. That's scary. It is a little bit, uh, that's for sure, because the enemy is sure looking, watching us. They're looking at everything. They're looking at our response to COVID. They're looking at our response to civil unrest. They're looking at uh, what seemed to be from the outside irreconcilable differences through a, a very contentious political season and election cycle. So they're looking at all these things and looking for ways uh, to exploit them. So being in the enemy's shoes for over a year, actually, I got to October, November of last year in 2020, uh, finishing up the novel and having put myself in the enemy's position for uh, for so long, I thought, you know what? Gosh, if I was the enemy, I might just I might just watch from the outside for a while because we're doing a pretty good job of tearing ourselves apart from the inside here. Um, and so I had to figure out a way as an author to uh, to move that plot forward and to make it ne- uh, necessary for the enemy to strike us kind of while we're on our knees. But uh, but yeah, it was very it was a little bit chilling to be researching all of that when. COVID hit because I was uh, hypersensitive to uh, to what the enemy was learning. And I would think maybe it also helps you that readers have such an intimate knowledge now about viruses, about the steps you take to contain viruses. I mean, I think there's even a point in the book where, where you just throw out PPE and you don't even have to explain what PPE is because at this point, everyone understands what those three letters stand for. That's right. And I didn't know how that was going to be at the outset. So when, when uh, COVID hit, of course, so you know, I heard about it because I was so deep into all this. I heard a little something in December, in mid-December, because I was interviewing so many people for, for research. Uh, then, of course, hit January, I'm hearing more. And I might not have even, it might have just been uh, you know, a passing type thing had I not been so involved in the research for this novel. Then, of course, February hits, and it's on everyone's radar in March, obviously. Of course, schools closed down and all the rest of it. But I was cur- I didn't know if readers would be you know, oversaturated with all of this. Um, but at the same time, I was already so deep into the research. And then not even 
from the bioweapons perspective, but just from the perspective of the foundation of this book being um, what the enemy has learned by watching us in, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, other hotspots around the world. They've essentially been watching us play poker, looking at our cards, seeing how we play those cards, taking those lessons, applying them to future battle plans. I knew that, hey, the enemy is learning by how we are responding to COVID right now. What are they learning? What lessons are they taking? What are they applying to future battle plans? So it wasn't really even a choice as to whether to uh, to incorporate that into the novel because that was really the foundation of the book. Um, but uh, but I didn't know how readers would react. And thus far, um, I mean, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, and people are are uh, really responding to this one. Now, from the start, your James Reese series has always been about revenge. And I think the best way to describe the revenge in this book is a, is a 9-11 revenge story, both from the U.S. side and maybe even the enemy side, because as you've been saying, they've been sitting and watching over the last 20 years to see how we react. Did, did the 20th anniversary of those attacks inspire the timing of this story? So I, I was inspired by, to start writing this story through a conversation I had with somebody back in the fall of 2017 um, when I was, I was down in Argentina and I was talking to someone who had a background in the uh, security sector who was actually mentioned by name in the 9-11 Commission report. Um, I talk a little bit about all of this in the author's note at the end of the, of the novel. First time I've done an author's note, I, usually I do a preface and I do a preface again in this to set the tone, but it's the first time I've done an author's note just because it was, there was so much research involved in this uh, and I wanted the reader to get to the end and I knew they'd probably have questions about what was fact and what was fiction. So I run through that in, um, in the author's note there. But um, uh, oh, geez, where were we going with that? I got so <laughs> inspiration, I got so Argentina. Jeez, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, so yeah, so that was 20, uh, 2017 before the first book even came out. Um, and I'm always looking for stories. I'm always writing down uh, ideas and plot lines and uh, themes to explore and that sort of thing. So back then, I didn't really, it wasn't really on my radar that, uh, oh, you know what, in my fourth book will be about this, and it'll be the 20th uh, anniversary of 9-11. So back then, that wasn't really on my radar back then. Um, it was when I decided to go forward with it, but it was a question as to how to deal with that appropriately, um, because I wanted to explore this theme um, of what the enemy is learning, because they're always learning, they're always adapting, um, and we're trying to do the same to them, but they're, they tend to be a little more agile than we are, because both on the military side and on the political side, we're a gigantic bureaucracy. Um, so they can pivot a little quicker than we can. Um, but then as I started, I wanted to make sure that I handled it in a way that was was appropriate. Um, and I really dove into all these documents on, on 9-11, all this research on 9-11, went through that 9-11 commission report with a fine-tooth comb. Um, and then I drew out a few unanswered questions. Um, and then I started researching those unanswered questions. So really this one, yes, it is a revenge. There's a revenge element to this. But it's uh, it's really it's not James Reese who is uh, who is seeking revenge in this one, like in the first first novel. Um, it's somebody else, uh, the, the president, in fact. And uh, and he is using essentially James Reese because he knows that Reese has done this before. Um, and uh, if something goes wrong, uh, he kind of be be written off as expendable. Um, but uh, but, yeah, I definitely want to make sure I handled it in a way that was appropriate and going back into all that. Um, I've been to the 9-11 Museum, of, of course, the, the memorial, um, which is fantastic uh, for anybody who hasn't done it. It's very moving and, and, uh, and well done. Um, just a very a sacred place. Um, but 
uh, I couldn't go there again because of COVID. So uh, all this research was pretty much done from my, my office here in, in books and going back into to, to archives and listening to those people who made phone calls right before they were about to die on planes. And oh my God, just talking about it right now gets me emotional. Um, but diving back into that, so I want to make sure it was done in, a, in an appropriate way. And uh, hopefully I pulled that off. Political and, and military thrillers like what you write existed before 9-11. But how do you think those attacks change the way you tell these kinds of stories? Well, I think it's changing again. So for sure, things pivoted on, on 9-11. And we had, of course, the, the, the late, great Vince Flynn, who his term limits was written well, well before 9-11, of course. But um, he was really that author that uh, that moved the genre forward when we're talking about post 9-11 political thrillers. Um, And so there was a time, and I think it's changing now, but I think we had a 20-year run um, when people didn't didn't question as much uh, who our enemy is, why we're going after them, because 9-11 was such a recent memory and it affected uh, everyone one way or another. Um, so now I think that's pivoting. I think now we're, we're 20 years in, in Afghanistan, almost 20 years, you know, in Iraq, we've been on this war footing for, for so long that, uh, that I think that's pivoting. I think there's that the readers, uh, the country is, uh, is a little tired of uh, what we're doing in real life. And that translates to the, to the page. So I think things are shifting. Um, and, uh, and for me, I think you can see that in, in my novels in that, uh, hey, there's, there's other forces at play here. And right now, I'm, I, we're, we're uh, this, this big tech, big government uh, type thing. I think it's more on people's, on people's mind, the power that Silicon Valley has, uh, you know, politicians wanting to divide us type thing and being able to use social media to do so to kind of weaponize that. Um, uh, so I, I think all of those things will play more into novels going forward um, rather than how uh, an enemy uh, was was incorporated into novels in those post 9-11 years. So I, I think there's a shift that's, uh, that's, that has come uh, and, uh, and we'll see continue here going forward with political thrillers. And I guess what you're saying too, the whole idea, quote unquote, of an enemy and what that person looks like is also shifting from, you know, for so long, the enemy in these books have been people of Middle Eastern descent. And have you ever been worried that these books perpetrate some sort of stereotype or is it just a cold, hard truth that these were the people we were concerned about? Yeah, I think after 9-11, it was uh, you didn't have to ask as many questions uh, as far as who the enemy was if you're writing some of these novels. Um, today, I think you owe that to the reader to, to really look into those things. So in my first novel, um, if there is uh, one bad guy um, of Middle Eastern descent, but he is essentially weaponized by the government. He's radicalized online uh, by forces he he, well, he thinks he knows who they are, but it's really not. So, uh, and it's not a main character. It's just, uh, uh, it just goes, it's just um, kind of framing who the actual antagonists are in this thing and how devious they are. Uh, so, so I, so I didn't kind of go down that, that path in that book. In the second one, um, I, I really was inspired by my time in uniform in Baghdad in 2006, um, where I had a, a friend in a covert action unit that I was working with at the time who was uh, was a unique individual, and he was such a character and so smart and, uh, uh, and such a good operator, um, and uh, he was an Iraqi. Uh, so he inspired a character in my second one, but he's uh, uh, but there's but he it's not the typical like bad guy. In fact, he ends up being 
I don't want to ruin too much here, but I think I go into it uh, more than just like a cardboard cutout character um, because I actually knew him and was friends with him and went and was in an ambush with him and, and that sort of thing. So hopefully I humanize him a bit. And, uh, and he he actually, I don't want to give away the fourth novel either, but uh, but he's, a, he's almost a, he's a fan favorite. There's a couple of fan favorites out there. And he's, he's one of them. So I kind of like showing, I'm not kind of, I really like showing um, people who, maybe over the past 20 years would have been uh, just framed as a, as a bad guy because of where they come from and who they're affiliated with. And I like to make it a little more complex because the world is a complex place. And of course, my third one is all uh, Russian mafia type based. Um, and then, uh, then this, this fourth one is uh, it, it really, I mean, it's really an academic study of, uh, uh, of what the enemy has learned and how they've adapted over the years, which, uh, which they continue to do today. So what's your 9-11 story? So I was in, on my second deployment, I was in Guam at the time. And uh, so my whole SEAL platoon was in Guam. And uh, it's about midnight there and phones start ringing up and down the hallways and people start banging on doors. And of course, this is, you know, 20 years ago. So we don't have TVs in our rooms in the barracks, that sort of thing. So we all went down to the basement of the barracks and uh, watched the Twin Towers fall on TV. And uh, I was the intelligence representative for my SEAL platoon. So, uh, and I had been, I'd just been, I'd studied books on the Taliban. I'd studied books on Osama bin Laden, on Al Qaeda. Um, I was uh, about as in tune as you could be um, with that organization. And uh, I thought, hey, we're going, we're going to Afghanistan tomorrow. And that really wasn't how it was. It uh, it took a little while to figure things out from the uh, the military government perspective, uh, and then get us in there. And in fact, we went to um, Kuwait and thought we were going to hop over to Afghanistan, but instead we took over something called uh, shipboarding operations in the uh, uh, to take down ships that were coming out of Iraq at the time uh, and enforce the the UN oil embargo against Iraq. And so we take down these ships before they could make it into Iranian waters. Um, and so we took over that mission and the guys that had been doing that went into Afghanistan. But I found myself in Afghanistan not that not that far after that. But um, but yeah, it was very, um, I guess we, we all knew that things had shifted and now we were going to do the things that we thought we were going to do when we came into the SEAL teams. Um, we all came in, we thought we were going to be off on all these secret missions immediately. And uh, that wasn't the case when you came into the SEAL teams in the, in the 90s. Uh, but uh, as soon as September 11th happened, then it was time to go and uh, time to put in practice the things that we've been training for for so long. And uh, the interesting thing is that everyone thought they were going to miss it. If you if you weren't deployed and you weren't in the fight right away, uh, guys were worried that they were going to going to miss it and miss the kind of the chance to defend their country. Um, and of course, now twenty years later, that uh, that was not a worry that one needed to have back then. But but we really didn't know. And that leads me to my next question because the president just recently announced by the nine eleven anniversary that the troops will come out of Afghanistan. Is is this good news or, or should we be worried that that someone else will try to come in there or that the Taliban will try to come back? Well, they definitely will come back in and, and fill that void. But uh, the world's changed over the last 20 years. And what you needed in the pre 9-11 years, a, a physical space, a physical sanctuary in which to train and plan, um, that's not as necessary today as it was back then. You can do a lot of these things virtually. And we also need to remember that the, the 9-11 plot was actually conceived in the Philippines. It was, uh, yeah, greenlit in Afghanistan, uh, but then the tactical level planning, so that base level planning took place in Hamburg, Germany, San Diego, California, um, Arizona, Florida. So, uh, so having that sanctuary in that place um, isn't, not, isn't not necessarily um, 
uh, where we need to focus all of our energy. So after 20 years, when you're doing counter, what's called expeditionary counterinsurgency, meaning you're not doing a counterinsurgency on home soil, um, you are doing it overseas in someone else's country, that's a very difficult proposition. And that's a 30 to 40 year type of endeavor. And we went in there initially to disrupt and destroy Al-Qaeda operations. Uh, we definitely disrupted off the bat. Of course, it took 10 years to uh, uh, to find Osama bin Laden. That was done. Um, and now I think that the public and the military and our politicians with all these shifting shifting goals as far as nation building and uh, counter corruption, uh, you know, all the bribery and the, the drug trade and everything else that goes into that over there or disrupting sanctuaries in Iran and Pakistan. Um, well, we can do that probably forever. Um, so the question is, do we want to stay there forever doing that? Is that worth America's blood and treasure uh, or not? And uh, I think the country has come to the decision that it is not. Um, and it's probably the right decision um, to, to bring, bring everybody back, take a breath, and then make sure that we apply going forward the lessons that we've learned over the last 20 years. Because I don't think that our senior level political or military leaders really understood the nature of the conflict uh, in which they were about to be engaged. They confused uh, commitment with the victory. And uh, and that's something I call imperial hubris, and we have uh, we fallen prey to that both in uh, Afghanistan and and in Iraq. So you'll notice in my books that the senior level leaders don't get off easy when I'm uh, creating these characters because uh, I think they let us down when uh, when in their primary responsibility of being able to make these strategic level decisions because on the ground we can't we can't really affect that we're going down range and we're going to do the job, but those senior level political and military leaders their only job is to make good, solid, uh, strategic decisions. And we certainly had a lot of data to, to look at uh, going in. We had Genghis Khan, we had uh, Alexander the Great, we had three British excursions into Afghanistan uh, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And uh, of course we had the, the Soviet experience in Afghanistan uh, starting in 1979. So, uh, so we had data to look at, yet we chose either to not look at it or to not heed those lessons uh, and instead commit forces and confuse that commitment with victory. It's crazy to think how much blood could be spared from being shed if people would just learn from history and not repeat it. Exactly. Exactly. I try to all the time. Just uh, I, I talk about getting into these books and uh, how much how important it is to not base your your opinion off one person's uh, tweet, uh, two sentence tweet, maybe maybe a one sentence tweet. Uh, and that person probably also did not put the requisite time, energy and effort into the study of history uh, to really think about its lessons and, uh, and apply that knowledge uh, as wisdom going forward. And uh, I think that's probably most of us. Um, so I, I always beat the drum for, for getting into the page of these books and really putting the time in, especially when it's going to affect future generations. Um, put the time in uh, before you jump to a, an opinion or a conclusion uh, based on someone else's uh, ill-informed uh, opinion that just happens to be loud on uh, Instagram or Twitter. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm going to pivot and I want to end this interview on a bit of a higher note. Last... Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> no, I mean, I, this is all important conversations that we need to have. And if, if people start to get it because they read a book that's interesting to them and it starts a conversation and starts them to want to research more, I think that's a great way to, to be, get yourselves informed. Yeah, no, I agree. And I learned so much from the pages of, of novels growing up. Um, I just love diving into the books by Tom Clancy and Nelson DeMille and David Morrell and A.J. Quinnell and J.C. Pollock and Mark Olden and Stephen Hunter because back then there was no internet, obviously, and you knew that these authors had done 
some research. I mean, you couldn't jump online and ask them or send them an email, of course, uh, but you trusted that they had done their done some research and you, you learned little things and it made you question certain things. And uh, I, I, there was so much magic for me growing up reading those, reading those books and so much inspiration that uh, I'm trying to do the same thing with what I do today. So the last time we chatted, we got to talk about yes. the, the screen adaptation of your first novel, The Terminal List. Any update yes. you can give us as to when we might get to sit down and binge it? I can, yes. So it's uh, they're filming right now, and it's uh, it's a long filming schedule because it's uh, you know for a movie you're going you do these these movies and you're trying to get an hour and a half ish worth of uh, worth of film. So for a series like this one, it's going to be an eight part series. So you're looking for about an hour. So you're looking for eight a- each episode, so eight hours. So it takes a lot longer to film a series than it does a uh, an hour and a half movie. Uh, not always, but generally. Uh, so I just got back from set about two weeks ago, and it was incredible. 350 people working on this set uh, in L.A., and uh, Chris Pratt starring, and he, for people that are just used to seeing him in Guardians of the Galaxy or Jurassic World or Avengers, uh, he, is, he is dark and primal and uh, visceral and violent, and uh, people are going to be surprised. And then Antoine Fuqua is just one of the most amazing people I've ever met. He directed Training Day, uh, Tears of the Sun, Magnificent Seven, Equalizer, and uh, kind of he's the, he's the guy in charge out there on, on set uh, for that first episode anyway. And uh, just incredible. It was, a, it was like a military operation, everything from craft food services to the transportation person to the person that's dealing with all the weapons and the explosive guy. And it's, uh, it was incredible. And it was like a reunion on set, too. There's the, the 12 SEALs that I had served with uh, that were all on set doing either stunt coordination or technical advising or acting in it or playing SEALs. And, uh, and it, was, it was so cool to see, completely surreal. And I think it uh, is coming in 2022 at some point. All right, so we have to wait a little bit, but that was a—I think—that's a good way yeah. to, to to tease it and maybe get people gives people some time to to dive into your books. Oh, perfect, perfect. Yep, I think it's. Uh, yeah, we'll see. Of course, there's plenty of things that can trip you up along the way, especially with uh, with COVID and everything, and it's a shutdown filming. You know, who knows? Um, but right now, it's looking good, and uh, and we shall see. But can't wait to get it out there in 2020. And in the meantime, I'm working on book five, which I'm super excited about, and uh, we'll dive back into into that after uh, after this week, this book four book launch week. We've been talking with Jack Carr. The new book is The Devil's Hand. Thank you for so much for spending all this time with us today. And uh, we always appreciate it. And we always love talking to you. Oh, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope. And just like that, we've finished another chapter. Next time, we usher in the warming weather with the start of our annual Beach Read series. Yes. I know, I can't believe how fast this year is flying either. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.